Okay, uh, welcome back everyone. Any leftover questions before we go on? We did have the one question about doing the meta practice when the longing is for the emotional goods that come to us in relationship. And uh, I've given it some thought and it seems like the Standard meta practice is really good for that, as well as the <clears throat> list of various um, 43 commitments that we just talked about. I believe they kind of help reorient you toward a bigger picture. So that would be my response so far. But um, any other questions? Or okay, right here. Do we have the mic? Wait, wait, wait. Um, I had a question about um, sort of the desire that sort of is on top of like a deeper longing and yeah when we start to maybe begin to recognize the deeper longing that's behind some of the more addictive desires, how do we um, reroute that in a way that doesn't just sort of attach to a different addictive desire? Yes, very good question. And so when you discover the longing underneath, and it's usually quite simple, as in the example I gave from the movie, um you would use this, the loving-kindness style. How do I give this to myself? How do I open myself? So give to self. How do I open myself to receiving it from others? So we have three questions. And how do I respond to it from a higher power? How is a higher power trying to give me what I long for? What a beautiful way to see the higher power. Trying to... Um, respond to my longings. Reminds me of that uh, image in in, um, Catholic devotion where everybody's seen this picture. It's a picture of Jesus with his heart on the outside and he's pointing to the heart and saying, Behold the heart that loves you so much. So if you could have that kind of feeling, there's something that um, responds to me that would really help. So it's self, others, and higher power. Or if you don't have higher power in your vocabulary, it could be 
Buddha nature. Okay, other questions about this? Oh yeah, yes. I, I just have a comment, maybe a question in it. But I've been studying love, this is very odd, for like 10 years, reading everything I can read about it, searching, searching. And I came to the conclusion that everything I'm looking for is inside of me, the love I'm looking for is inside of me. Mm-hmm. So I started um, dating myself <laughs> and just spending a day, what do I need? And then going into that, and it evolved into, I was in Sedona doing meditation going out into the desert, getting really quiet. And I actually, when I was in Sedona, went and found this ring, and I married myself. I know this sounds really weird. Does this sound really weird? (laughs) It sounds like it makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Or not. Or not. Yeah. But what do you think about that idea of dating yourself. And then I figured if I never meet anybody, I'll get exactly what I want. If nobody can match that, then I'm, I'm fine. Is that crazy? No, not at all. Just seems like a, a wonderful way to love yourself, which is part of why we're here. We want to love ourselves and be loved by others and by a power beyond ourselves. So it fits. Uh, right here. Um, when you speak of longing, you, you spoke of it sort of causally. Like, do you feel that longing is endemic to being human or being a species? In other words, if, if you consider uh, like dogs being just born of desire... Are they, in a sense, living a... Do they not overthink things too much? And they're living it more pure, and our big brains and frontal lobes have created this longing, and it thereby becomes a process for us and a good one. But is it a necessary part of us? And if it is, is, is it, does it reach for an asymptote, right? Do we, do we approach something we never get, but we can get closer and closer and closer? Um, the way I try to explain it in the book... In answer to the question, why do we have longings? It's a simple answer. We are joining in to the evolutionary impulse in the entire universe. Everything around us, all these trees and plants and birds are ever oriented toward being more adaptable to the environment they're in and being more and more capable of finding the resources that help them survive. We have that same evolutionary yearning in us and the style of full humanity is the style of love, meaning, freedom, happiness, and growth, as well as other longings, but I chose five that seem to be most common. So our having these longings is not an add-on. 
it's essential to our survival. Because we're not here just to survive. We're here to create a community of justice, peace, and love. And these help us get there. That's not the purpose of a leopard. Its purpose is important too. But our purpose has uh, a higher consciousness and meaning, which is our next topic. And these longings orient us in that direction. So let's take a look at our next one, which is the longing for meaning. And I'll just start with a little, I'm on page 68 if you now have the book. And they ran out of this book in the bookstore, but it is on Amazon or you can get it through my website or any bookstore. Uh, Oh, and the topic of how our early life affects our adult relationships, that we still have a couple of copies of the class I gave just on that topic. So if you're interested in that, it's um, out there. It's called Growing Pains and Growing Up. The And by the way, I was rereading Man's Search for Meaning when I wrote this book. So that's why I have meaning as one of the longings. So I start with a quote from him. But then I say, the word meaning refers most simply to the definition of a word. But meaning also refers to importance, significance, or impact. Meaningful refers to a depth in the level at which we understand and bodily experience our life. We can say our life is meaningful when it makes a difference, has a purpose, yields personal fulfillment. We feel our life is meaningful when we're committed to something greater than ourselves, when we believe we do have a place in this world, when we feel that we are here for a reason, that our lives matter, that we matter. This happens most felicitously when we love what we do, when we enjoy the beauty of something or of nature, when we make a contribution to others, when we dedicate ourselves to a cause or purpose. Now we can understand why Viktor Frankl sees a link between meaning and a loving life purpose. So from the point of view of Buddhism, the meaning is to live out the loving-kindness practice in daily life. So that's the connection between the meaning and love. And we could even say, well, love is the most meaningful thing in life. That which has the most significance and the most impact. And you could also say that your life has meaning when you're open to love and 
when it comes to co-creating a world of justice, peace, and love, I put, I put the accent of meaning not on the success of that particular purpose. And I got this from the Dalai Lama because he was asked the question, well, how do you know that your practice is truly meaningful? He said, I don't know anything about that. All I know is when I put sincere effort into my practice, it feels right. So our sincere intention and practice is the equivalent of a meaningful life. As opposed to, I can feel the meaning or I can see it or, oh, I'm making a big contribution because I did this particular job or wrote this particular book. We would let ourselves settle into the realization that as long as I come into the day with a sincere intention and with a practice, then I have a meaningful life. So this then leads us to the difficult and unanswerable questions that seem to show that life is not meaningful. I'm going to give an example. So I'll I'll start with um, a little scene from another film that I saw called Jackie, which is about Jackie Kennedy. And it takes place right after the president was assassinated. And in this scene, she's taking a walk with her priest's advisor. And she says... I've lived a good life, try to do everything that the church teaches, yet I lost two infant children. Now my husband's been assassinated. What meaning does that possibly have? And doesn't it show that God is cruel to make these things happen? So he said, well, we, we trust that God is love in some way, but I do want to go to this unanswerable question that in the course of life, terrible things happen to us that defy meaning and we just can't make sense of why certain Terrible tragedies have happened. Especially if we believe superstitiously 
that happiness is a reward for being good and that pain is a punishment for being bad. And and it's not like that because happiness comes to people who are bad and pain comes to people who are good. So that can't be it. But he said something very uh, profound, even though it sounds simple. It led me to a whole new realization. I thought it was really beautiful. He said, at night, I lie down in my bed and I look out into the dark and I say, do any of the things I believe have meaning? Are any of them true? And I have no answer. I have no answer to any of the questions such as the one you're bringing up. But the next morning, I get up and I make coffee and I start the day. And that is the answer to the question. That we have it in us to keep going on no matter what comes our way. I thought it was so profound and so simple. I thought, yeah, that's the only way you could ever answer such a question as Jackie asked. And instead of thinking of it as a terrible, cruel um, penalty that's put on us, we just say, what's the sincere intention I now bring to the rest of my life? And what is the practice that will help me get there? Which in her case would be grief and letting go. And that's that engaging in that, which is the equivalent of make coffee and go on with the day. That's the equivalent of an answer to these uh, questions that defy meaning, seem to have no meaning. It's a seriously adult response because it isn't based on comfort or comforting. It isn't a form of consolation. It's just something like the Buddhist saying, this being the case, how shall I proceed? Not this being the case, what went wrong? This being the case, who's to blame? This being the case, why did this happen? It's none of that. In true meaning, every why has turned into a yes, now what? So that's how it hooks up to the sincere intention and practice. Or another way of saying it is, our Buddhist practice is equipping us for all the, to hold and handle all the unanswerable questions that will come along. Okay, um, questions about this part? 
Everybody get the basic concept? So meaning can't be, it all fits into my model. That can't be what meaning is. Meaning is something that is more like a horse that's taking you to a new place. What is this new place? It's the world of yes. Now what? Rather than the world of why. Why did this happen to me? That's what Jackie asked. She said, my first son died in childbirth. One son died in childbirth. The other one died after 56 hours, just long enough to fall in love with him. You can see how that would feel like an unanswerable question. Okay, any other comments or questions about it? All right, so let's take a look at our next one, which is the freedom to be yourself. And this would be the letting go of inhibition which closes off, which de-enfranchises certain counties in your psyche. These counties here, they don't have a vote. Just this county has a vote. Which county? The county that follows the rules. But others are inhibited. They're not allowed to express themselves. So society family, peers, religion. They have gerrymandered certain certain counties in you and denied them the vote. You certainly can't do this. You certainly can't be that. So that's the, so those are the inhibitions that we would have to look into and see if we now want to dispossess ourselves of them. And the other contradiction of our freedom is compulsion. That's the Latin, that's based on the Latin word um, push. You are pushed to do certain things that you might not want to do. So compulsions seem to force you to make choices that are contrary to the full expression of who you really are. So, for instance, a compulsion to drink alcohol alcoholically, that compulsion is certainly closing off parts of your personality, installing instead 
a personality that's full of ego and fear. So we would want to look into our compulsions and look into our inhibitions if we were to make a bigger contact with our longing for freedom. Now this particular longing stands out because many of us have given up on it. Like, it's just no longer so as important as making the impression we want to make, as projecting the persona that we want to project. We're not paying as much attention to, hey, wait a minute, what about all these parts of me that have never had their chance to express themselves? How about letting them come out? Many of us have kind of given up on that. So that's very tragic because it's kind of a despair. Take this poem by Emily Dickinson. Um, A great hope fell. You heard no noise. The ruin was within. Oh, cunning wreck that told no tale and let no witness in. A not admitting of the wound until it grew so wide that all my life had entered it and there was room beside. So sometimes the part of ourselves that we're hiding is a wound. The, 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 sorry, the Greek word for wound is trauma. And some of us are carrying around terrible traumas or a trauma that we're not admitting to ourselves that we're kind of still hiding. Maybe we're not ready to face it, so that hiding is healthy. Or maybe we do know about it and we could face some of it, but we just don't want to go there. Part of finding your full freedom is working with that. And that's a specialized area in therapy. So you would want to work with a therapist who was good at helping you express your um, truth about your wound in a delicate way so you could gradually work through it. Triggers in life usually go back to some kind of a trauma. So even triggers that force you to have a certain reaction, like whenever people do this, I get triggered and do that. That's the equivalent of I've lost freedom in that particular area. So one way that freedom doesn't come through is in the area of wound. And another area in which the freedom doesn't come through is in gifts. We came into the world with some very specific gifts and talents that we may not be expressing or even aware of, even in contact with them.
in this poem uh, called uh, You Never Know, she addresses this part of the freedom issue. Freedom was a big concern of hers. You never know how high you are till you are asked to rise. And then, if you be true to plan, your stature touch the skies. The heroism we recite would be a common thing did not ourselves the cubits warp for fear to be a king. In other words, we're warping ourselves, we're warping our stature, our head should touch the sky, we keep it down here, we're warping, why? For fear of our own power, for fear to be a king. So, <clears throat> so with the wound, it's the fear of dealing with how we were victims, And with the fear of showing our gifts and talents, it's the fear of having power. Fear of having power regarding gifts. Fear of how we lost our power in the wounds and traumas. So freedom isn't, is more than just uh, the ability and the right to do what you want to do. It's also the ability and the permission from within. We don't want to wait for people to give the permission, although we appreciate it when they do. You would have to be able to give yourself permission to be exactly who you are. And it's a delicate procedure because sometimes you hurt others when you are this direct. So you want to look at that also. I'll mention another film along these lines. This is an old, old one from the 40s, but it makes a good point. In this one, um, Barbara Stanwyck has two preteen sons, and her husband has just died. She's well-to-do, and her mother is even more well-to-do. When the and this is about nineteen forty-seven or forty-eight. <clears throat> So she refuses to wear black. And the mother says, you have to wear black. You are a widow. And it does not look right that you're not wearing black when your husband died. To which she says, I am not going to do it anyway. Next thing that happens is along comes another actor of the time, George Brent. <clears throat> and she's starting to fall in love, and she's openly going out with him, very close to when the husband died. 
the mother says, you cannot go out with a man when your husband just died. It does not look right. It is not, isn't right at all. She says, I don't care. Well, she keeps doing this and she's getting more and more enmeshed with this new man. She's falling in love. And the two sons are um, so upset and their friends are making fun of them at their private school. They run away from home and move in with the grandmother. This wakes up Barbara Stanwyck. She goes and picks them up at her mother's house. And she uh, decides that she's going to have to pull back from the new relationship because her choice is harming her children and she does love them. And that uh, this takes place during the war. And he's, he, the new man, is actually going back to the front. So she, it makes it easy for her to say, I'll wait till the war is over, then we'll see what happens. Anyway, here's the point I'm trying to make. <clears throat> Very last scene. <clears throat> Barbara Stanwyck and her two sons are leaving the mother's house. The boys go out to the car. And the mother and daughter are alone for a moment. And the mother says, I'm glad you made this decision. Now you see that what you thought was so old-fashioned actually could help you really show the motherly love that's in you. I thought that was a superb comment. I thought, okay, I get it. Yeah, you can be free, you can be yourself, but at a certain point, some of the rules of society, family, religion, and so forth, might help you put a, enough of a limit so that you don't hurt others. So I just want to throw that in. Does this make sense to everybody? It's not very California. <laughs> But you get the idea. <clears throat> so we keep that in mind. Like how, that's what I meant by it's, it's a kind of a delicate balance. How do I be free but yet not hurt others? Excuse me, but I think it makes a point that she made the decision. Yes, that's a good point. And that kind of made a difference. Yes, it was good that she herself made the decision. Yeah, not just do what others tell you to do. She was probably very triggered by her mother saying that. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. No doubt. Yeah. So that, that part's not good. Well, but she made a decision based on love rather than based on following. She, she did follow the rule because of love, not following it because society expected Yeah. Her. Yes. She... She set the limits not because society wanted her to, but because she herself saw how the two boys were harmed. Yeah, that's a very good point. 
Other questions about this freedom topic? Yes. Yeah. Um, just to that point, does it make sense that the reason the societal um, norms or rules came about was because of that? Because it prevented harm? Probably. To safeguard the family unit. Yeah. Go ahead. Was it not the other kids at school that were doing the harm and not her lack of capacity for motherly love? Yeah, the other kids were shaming the two. And that's the fact of the matter. But they themselves felt bad that their father's memory was not being honored in some way. And all her decisions made me wonder what their relationship had been like, of course, but that's neither here nor there. Okay, anybody else? Yeah. Thanks so much. Um, I think it's interesting, a question came to mind about um, meaning, um, but I think it might even be tied to this, to freedom. And um, I haven't seen the film, but I was, so I don't know the context, but I wonder if there had ever been a space for the boys to grieve and the mother explaining, you know, kind of helping them work through that grief. And just, and then also that moment of, right, like that, that then there will be for her a letting go and a moving on. Yeah, um, that's a know. good point. Yeah. <clears throat> they didn't quite have that consciousness back in the late 40s. <laughs> and, uh, I think the name of the film is My Reputation, which kind of says a lot also. And I I guess to go... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. So thinking about... I think the question came to mind about meaning, too, um, with the the Jackie film reference. um, Yeah. Again, that... that, um, Where is there a space, I think, for grieving, maybe, right? In, in, In something like that she would have the space in her world. I mean, of, you know, this very real figure with a tragic um, history. Mm. Um, but she, she could take the time. She had the means to grieve um, compared to, you know, getting up and making coffee and just going on with the day. Yeah. So I think that, that gray zone, I'm just, you know, those moments where I think we as humans need, need to grieve, but at the same time we have to get up and go back to work and the very physical exhaustion and psychological, emotional, like, spiritual exhaustion that comes from that. Yeah, it's That's always a... My question, I guess. Yeah, it's a big challenge, isn't it? Because we want to do the work, such as grieving, and sometimes it disables us for a while, but then eventually we have to go back to our life program. Otherwise, we're stuck like the character in... Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. You know, the old woman, Miss Havisham. Uh, She's kind of an archetype now. She was jilted on her wedding day. So she never took off the wedding dress. She kept the wedding cake on the table. And many years later, she's still sitting there with the tattered 
wedding dress and mice are going in and out of the cake. And oh, she also stopped all the clocks at the time of the wedding. So you could be like that. (laughs) Or you could do the work and then get back into the life story. That would be getting on with life. Yeah. David, I wanted to go back to um, the thread that you were talking about in terms of the things that keep us from freedom. And I wanted to ask, it's subtle, and I'm hoping I do the question justice, particularly given the room that we're in here. Um, It feels like there's a subtle distinction, but but almost some conflict between two different schools of thought. One of them is very psychodynamic, right? There's some Mm -hmm. kind of thing that happened that triggered us, and then we have to go back and either re-experience or kind of work with the history around it. The second school of thought is more... um, you know, witnessing, noticing what blocks us from our true nature and acknowledgement that there is such a thing as a true nature. And, and if we can just kind of notice, be with, allow, that we'll be able to kind of dot, fill in the blanks. There's a whole lot of stuff in there that I don't, I'm not skilled. But they feel like different trains of thought and different ways of working with oneself around this topic of freedom. And so I was kind of curious for your thoughts around that. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I continually... Um, notice that in the writing of the book that uh, I'm always trying to operate on both planes. We have, um, just to give a little picture of it, uh, so we have psychological work which let's say Freud helps us with, Freud and later contributors all the way down to modern times. And we also have, it's not, they're not so divided, I put and, we have our spiritual practice. Our spiritual practices, which came to us from Buddhism, from religion, from 12-step programs, started to have more of a consciousness of the spiritual dimension. And the healthy style would be to combine these two so that we're always moving back and forth between them such as in the example from our reading of the 43 ways of showing loving kindness and um, loving kindness and integrity. For instance, it would be psychological work to become assertive enough to say, ouch. And then it's spiritual practice to feel compassion for those who have hurt us and to do our meta practice for them. Freud doesn't know about that side of it, nor does he have to. So we're lucky enough to be living in an era in which there's more, there are more resources than just the psychological. And this matches the nature of our own psyche because we have a psyche that has this psychological uh, 
frame, but its underpinnings are spiritual. So being, consciousness, bliss, sat, chit, ananda, in the Hindu tradition. So being, consciousness, bliss, that's under all the stresses and traumas of our life story. I am not just a combination of the stresses and traumas. I am not just the person who was born in Connecticut and now lives in California. I am also the one who has a Buddha nature, who um, has a deep wellspring of being, consciousness, and bliss, which I can allow to come up through my story and continually refashion it so that it has a spiritual context that it comes from. Or another way of saying it is, uh, it will never be enough just to do the kind of work in Psychology 101. Now we also will pay attention to the spiritual side. And one last difference, the psychological work is about effort that we put in and the spiritual practice is about graces that come to us without effort. So that's a central difference between them. For instance, we were given the grace of being consciousness bliss. We were not given the grace of being assertive. We had to learn how to be assertive. How do you speak up? in a way that doesn't harm others, but gets your point across. That you can learn as a skill. Put effort into it, and you will have a skill set. That's all on the psychological side. Here we want a kind of continual opening to the graces that come through our practices, not because of them. So this is how I would do the sense of a combination. Make sense to everybody? Yeah. Oh, right. It was never enough anyway. Right. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So one of the questions, I mean, as a psychotherapist, I mean, because I've gotten much more on on the right side of that page while, you know, totally appreciating so much on the left side. And when I'm sitting with patients and clients, it's it's kind of hard, you know, when, when you have a certain vocabulary and a certain understanding like that BCB underneath the trauma and the wounding, And people, I mean, there's just a lot of bad psychotherapy. And we have a lot of bad ideas about that. And and so many people have come up in a popular culture with the tropes of psychotherapy and what it takes to get better. And that, 
you know, my wound becomes my, the only way to get my needs met and to get justice is, is very much through the terms of the wounding and the imbalance and the force, if you will, that the wounding has, has incurred. And it's just so hard to sit with clients and, you know, you need to honor that, that all of that and all of what, you know, you might think the person doesn't know about that. But when you start to think that the solution is ultimately on the right side of there. It's a whole other dimension. It's very difficult. Mm. It's very difficult. And I've had patients sort of breathe fire on me when I've, when I've tried to step into some of that or ask some questions that sort of lead to that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people fight it or don't accept it. And it's also a matter of timing, like certain things have to happen that kind of bring you around to the spiritual, especially with our children. We can't try to force them to have a spiritual orientation if they're not ready it's certainly a journey that's for sure yeah by the way putting freud here reminded me of something um you know he he once said the one question i've never been able to answer is what do women want (laughs) and i finally figured it out as i was writing the book I said, oh, he didn't make the distinction between desire and longing. He thinks women just have desires, in which case it's easy to know what they want. But if he had instead looked into this other side, and German does have two words, one for longing and one for desire, same way we do. Um, although their word for longing has the flavor of addiction. But um, he, uh, he could have said, I can't, I, I, I don't understand what women want because I haven't looked deeply enough into their longings. Because you see, a longing is never fully satisfied. So that's why he said, well, what do they want? They never seem satisfied. He wasn't thinking, well, nobody's satisfied unless when it comes to longing. Does everybody get the idea? And also it reminded me that uh, men don't use the word long. Men think more of, we think, I want this, I desire this. We feel kind of uncomfortable using the word longing. It sounds kind of feminine, sentimental. Isn't that interesting? In fact, when I was writing the book, I always look on Amazon to see if there's another book with that same title. Every book on longing was religious. Longing for God, longing for the Spirit, you know, that kind of thing. So I thought, well, this topic may be more appealing to women. But um, it's time for us all to be okay with it. Also, we misuse the word, like we say, I'm longing for an ice cream cone. But that isn't really a longing because it's a, 
attainable object. And you're not longing for, hopefully, you're not longing for an ice cream all day, every day, your entire life. (laughs) As you would for these other five. So, okay. Question? David, briefly, what would be a, a term you would use for men if you think, perhaps, longing is a little too soft for us? Be more like a yearning... I guess. Which is pretty much the same thing. Okay, one more in the back and then we will move on. Thanks, that's so interesting about men versus women or the masculine and feminine. And yes, it's a, there really is a big distinction when it comes to, I mean, if men, if the man in the relationship can't, understand what a longing is, it'll look to him like you can never be satisfied. What's wrong with you? But it isn't really like that. Mm. Since longings are mysterious and unexplainable, you can't just say straight out what you really want. Whereas it's a little easier for us because what we really want is often directly sexual Mm. or directly... uh, you know, be this way, don't be that way. So it's a lot easier for us because we don't hang out with longings as much. We don't have the permission to hang out with our longings as much. I was thinking about parenthood, actually. Um, and like if, if you've heard or if you write or take up at all the longing for a child, if that's a longing or if that's a desire, it's a possibility, but it's not always attainable. You mean longing to have a child? No, it would be desire to have a child and longing to express my parental love. So under the desire to have the child is the longing to express a particular kind of love that I seem cut out for. How many people in here, just show of hands, how many people in here believe that your mother was cut out to be a mother. <laughs> with, all that t- with all that that includes. The full deal. Raise your hand. About a quarter of the audience. So where does that leave the other three quarters of us? Had mothers who weren't cut out to be mothers? Yeah, how many people in here believe their fathers were cut out to be fathers? Think that your father was cut out to be a father? About the same number. Yeah. It isn't about perfect. It's about like they loved being mothers and they did it well or at least they had the sincere intention and they were always looking for ways to do it better. And you could tell that this was their central purpose regarding you as opposed to what some of us felt, three kids, three burdens. 
And they're not, it's not as if they were, it's not as if they were bad people. It's just that they didn't quite, uh, they weren't cut out for it. (laughs) Not everybody's cut out to be a parent. That's how nature would practice birth control. Nature didn't realize that people would be having children without really planning or that they'd be having children because it's conventional. Nature thought, the ones I I endow with the mother instincts, those are the only ones that will have children. That's what nature thought. This one, that one. She didn't think, well, they're all going to try to do it. It doesn't quite go. Okay. There's a huge abundance of eggs out there floating everywhere of little creatures. And yeah, some of them take. And we've done too good a job in this culture or in this world. I went to this, thank you. I went to this talk once on falconry, um, which is a very special kind of a sport. And this man was expert. He was hired by Arabs who were very into falconry to teach them. Anyway, he told us something very interesting, which I'd never forgotten. He said, the two falcons, male and female, get together in the spring. They don't start doing the egg production and whatever you call what the male does. Here's what happens. The female flies up and down her territory and she counts the number of mice and rabbits and other little mammals. She comes back to the nest with the count. She divides the count by the number of young that can be satisfied with that number of mammals. And she lays only the number of eggs to fit the territorial resources. Can you imagine? Yeah. So she'll make it known to the male You can do it once or twice. That's it. Isn't that fascinating? I thought to myself, wow, imagine if humans did that. Walk up and down your psyche and say, let's see, how many children can I handle? How many can I really take care of? Yeah. And so we've got... We're talking about chimpanzees. That, and in that movie, it showed that when the female chimpanzee goes into heat, she mates with every single male chimpanzee. There's no... Pure bounding. Yeah. And that secondly, this chimpanzee had two children. One who successfully became independent and went on to have her own children... And or chimpanzee babies, and her son, 
who never was able to to become independent. And when she died, he died three weeks later. So it's an interesting... Yeah, same idea. All of us primates. So let's have the question in the back, and then we're going to take a short break. And then when we come back, we'll talk about our other two longings. I have a question back to the woman who was asking about longings um, to have children, to bear children. Yeah. Um, And going back to the beginning of your talk, we talked about consider and living your chart, your astrological chart. Yeah. So say supposing you have Chiron in a certain place in your chart where you're actually wounded and it's sort of like a wounding that doesn't really ever heal, which is a lifetime of work but you really wanted to bear children. I mean, how do you account for that? Yeah, you would have to um, put the desire next to the uh, project of working on yourself and somehow bring those together. Many of our parents didn't think that way. You know, some of us were planned and some of us were accidental. And, uh, you know, we didn't come from like a conscious decision about how they were ready to take care of us. So I guess they helped us in a way because we then learned to take care of ourselves. So maybe there was an advantage to it. I have an observation. Sorry. Um, Can I? Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Sorry. Um, I I actually don't view, in my personal opinion, maybe I have survivor guilt because I had a pretty great mom. And my experience, because I come to Spirit Rock a lot (laughs) for a lot of different um, workshops, and I, I recognize that that's not the case for many, many people. And but I also think that maybe the longing, and I believe it's a longing to uh, have bear a child, have a child, is more based on unconditional love and wanting that, whether you had it or not. I Absolutely. I really think it's a desire. Yeah, and that would be a beautiful origin for any of us. All right. Uh, Let's take a short break again, and then we will come back and continue. If uh, you're enjoying the uh, David Rico workshop today and you'd like to listen to it at a later time, um, this uh, workshop is being recorded uh, for an organization called Dharma Seed, and you can download this workshop uh, at sr.dharmaseed.org in about a week. Thank you. Oh, oh, because only, that's only for the video, so so we won't include that. Oh, I yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, I think we're about ready to start. <clears throat> I want to take a look take a look at the other two longings for happiness and growth. But first, um, sometimes in the way I'm presenting it, it's uh, and I mentioned men and women. We always are keeping in mind that this applies both to uh, gay and straight kind of an audience. So always know that. I'm including both, and also that when I mention men and women, it's some men, some women. It's not all. For instance, some men are comfortable talking about longings. So I only became comfortable with it after writing the book. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. So I'm going to begin with just a short reading at the beginning of our chapter, Longing for Happiness. Um, And I'm on 102. And I'm starting with a wonderful quote from Shantideva, 8th century Buddhist teacher, in his wonderful book, The Way of the Bodhisattva. For the caravan of beings traveling on the path of mundane existence, it is the Feast of Happiness that satisfies those who have come as guests. We begin by reminding ourselves that all five of our basic longings hook up with one another. Our longing for happiness is closely tied to the other four central longings. We are happy when we are loved. We are happy when our life has meaning, especially when we are of service. We are happy when we are free. We are happy when we notice ourselves progressing, feel ourselves evolving. And then I have a quote from a famous 1815 book, a Quaker book called A Guide to True Peace. Tempests never reach into that serenest heaven within, where pure and perfect love resides. So no matter what happens, it can't mess up the serene heaven of love that continues to reside in us. And this is where I make the distinction. Dopamine is the hormone related to anticipation of reward, excitement, pleasure, thrills. In dopamine moments, we seek pleasure. And oxytocin is the hormone having to do with connectedness and uh, affectionate feelings. And uh, dopamine is related to what we do. That's why the seeking of it can become addiction Whereas oxytocin is about what we are. That's why it doesn't lead to an addictive response. Dopamine leads us to attach to the rewarding object, but not stay with it. So I want you to leave in the morning. Whereas wanting and wanting the dopamine rush makes us want to seek again a new thrill in new arms. But oxytocin leads us to stay put and to be focused on our partner in such a way 
that we no longer turn our heads to stare at others. This combination of staying and attentiveness increases the depth of the bond. We might say in summary that dopamine gets us going, romance, but oxytocin keeps us where we arrived. Craving is a search for dopamine. Ache and loneliness are the longing for oxytocin. That's what you're actually longing for. The dopamine makes us want and hunt for the next high. The oxytocin makes us want nothing but to stay. As Romeo said, here will I stay. So the happiness, uh, the longing for happiness is... Not the long, it's not a longing for a thrill. That would be a desire because the thrill is temporary and uh, immediate, whereas the longing is ongoing and enduring. So longing for happiness has to do more with a sense of contentment Serenity, it will include inner peace. In fact, all the longings are categories that include many different entries. None of the longings is just one thing. That's another difference between a longing and a desire. Desires for the one thing that you desire, such as the ice cream cone, but the longing for happiness includes a lot more. So the psychological work is to let go of the expectation that somebody will keep providing the happiness and you're, you're, you've become aware that one of the adult challenges in life is to find these in ourselves and in others. So here we are longing for something that we ourselves could give ourselves in some way How do I give myself happiness? From the Buddhist perspective, it's very simple. We want what we have. That's the equivalent of happiness as opposed to I want what I don't have. So this topic of happiness um, to me is also expressed in the wonderful prayer of um, the Lutheran theologian Reinhold Niebuhr which is now the 
prayer affirmation of 12-step program. Serenity to, <clears throat> excuse me, accept the things we cannot change. Courage to change the things we can. and Wisdom to know the difference. So that's one way of experiencing happiness by living out that particular prayer. We are happy when we accept what is, change what yields to change, and wise enough to know the difference. And the wisdom to know the difference between accepting and accomplishing would be the specific challenge. Questions about this uh, part of it? It's uh, kind of a slippery one to define. And once again, it's signature, so each person will feel happy in his or her own way. I'm sure you've also noticed sometimes you just wake up and you're happy. Other times you wake up and you're depressed. And there's no way to figure out where it comes from. Just enjoy the happiness and hang with the depression. Let them all come and go. So the attitude of come and go, which is something like continual touching in and letting go, is the style of mindfulness. So the thought comes in, and I notice it, let go of it, come back to my breathing. That's the style that makes the most sense with all of these longings. I let them come in, I let them be there, and I uh, let them go when the time is right. Okay, any ideas? Um, Oh yeah, go ahead. So in positive psychology research, they talk about how happiness is mediated by temperament. I was wondering if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, sometimes you have the kind of a, shall we say, um, introvert or extrovert style that just automatically has contentment in it. If you could be content with yourself as an introvert or an extrovert without demanding that others be the way you are, that would be the equivalent of happiness also because you're accepting yourself just as you are. And what about optimist and pessimist? Um that sometimes you're going to be optimistic, sometimes pessimistic. Is that what you mean? Or some people came in with a temperament that's um, just automatically one way or the other. Kind of reminds me of the origin of the uh, Rorschach test, the ink blot. You know, you look at the ink blots and you make up a story. And the origin is very interesting. Dr. Rorschach, psychiatrist, had a patient who was a woman. She came in one to the office one day and with her twin sons. She said, I couldn't find a babysitter. Do you mind if they sit out here in the waiting room while we're having our session? He said, okay. 
she said, do you have any, you know, like crayons or you have, you know, <laughs> something to keep them occupied? He said, all I have is paper and ink. And, you know, pens and ink and paper. Back when they used pens and ink wells. Anyway, she said, okay, that's fine. So, so they left the boys with the pen and the inkwell, pens and inkwell, and they went in the, for their session. When they came out, the boys were arguing. They had decided to pour ink on the paper, fold it, and open it up to see a picture, which is fine. And they had done this with a particular ink blot, and they were arguing. One boy said, it's a butterfly, a black butterfly. And the other boy said, no, it's a bat, an ugly bat. So uh, the, the woman turned to the doctor and she said, it's interesting that they're saying that. The one who says it's a butterfly, he's always optimistic. And the one who said it's a bat, he's always pessimistic. That got the doctor thinking. <laughs> and, and that picture became number one of the series. So, yeah, some people just have that orientation. You'd have to kind of make the best of it. So, regarding group, uh, our other topic of growth, the longing to keep evolving, the longing to keep growing and evolving takes us to our other handout. So let's uh, take a look at that. And uh, where do, where's our microphone? Okay, where do we leave off with the reading? Anybody remember? Who was the last person who read? Okay, so this woman right here will be the first one. So what you want to do is just read one paragraph each, even when it's only a sentence long. Everybody have In the House of the Healthy Psyche? Okay. In the House of the Healthy Psyche... A healthy body-mind is like a safe, clean, quiet, cozy room. It is presided over by you and never by anyone or anything else. The house is you, psychologically healthy ego within an evolving spiritual self. At the same time, it is the universe with all its living beings and lively events. In this room, there are no screams of terror or horror, and no unforgivable guilt, shame, or regrets banging on the door. Nor are there graffiti on the walls. You should or should have, you won't, you can't. Your room often has visitors, but it is not haunted by archaic ghosts, obsessions, or compulsions. Nor is it cluttered by grudges. All that happens to you passes through like hikers that take nothing and leave nothing behind. 
Yet this is unusually a joyous and welcoming room from which you do not seek to flee, but in which you find sanctuary and out of which you gather much to give. This spacious room has a picture window on each wall facing the four directions. East, the rising sun, what is starting to happen or coming your way? with or without you knowing it yet. New beginnings and challenges for you to face begin through this window. West, the setting sun. What is ending and you need to let go of? Grief is acceptable here since losses and changes are givens of life. North, the North Star the stabilizing spiritual force that you live by, the resource you turn to, e.g. spirituality, God, higher power, personal standards, support system, nature, silence, prayer, dharma. This is what you rely on, especially in hard times. South, a full sunny exposure, your lively energy, imagination, free-spirited spontaneity, your dreams, your sources of renewal. To the rising sun, say, welcome. To the setting sun, say, I am letting go. To the north star, say, I trust. To the full sun, say, I open. You are in the center of the room affirming an unconditional yes to all four experiences without complaint or need for escape and with no attempts to close the blinds. There may be clouds in the way as you look out each window. Uncertainty, blur, vagueness, ambiguity. Simply notice this and be open to the time when things become clearer to you. Your quiet room becomes noisy in the east and west when you fear or resist the dawn of present challenges or the dusk of necessary endings. It is the noisy in the north when you have not found a spiritual foundation in yourself. It is the noisy in the south when you block your potential, fear, spontaneity, hold back your lively energy, or run from anything new. A way of knowing a relationship or situation is healthy is that you do not have to shut any windows to be in it. Who showed me where my windows were? Who helped me open them? Who is helping me look through them now? Draw this room, a four-sided mandala, and place yourself a smiley face, saying, yes, in the center. Then, write in the events and choices that fit for what is happening to you in each of the four directions of your life right now. Notice that beginnings and endings often happen together. How does your North Star help with these? How do these open opportunities force a Southern exposure? To which of the four directions are you saying yes? So here am I in the center with this attitude of yes 
I say yes to what is about to begin. I say yes to what is coming to an end. Here I am letting go as I say yes to an end. Here I am saying welcome to what is about to happen. I rely on a power higher than my ego to help me as I do this. And I'm always opening to the possibility of the full sun that shows me my creativity, my spontaneity, and all the possibilities to see something creative in what's happening. And I have the kind of a head that can turn and look in each of the directions. Or my whole body turns and looks in each of the directions, shall we say. Always with a yes. This is the equivalent of growth. The longing for growth is the longing for the kind of a heart that is so full of yes that it goes in each of the four directions with equal skill and equal acceptance. As Shakespeare says in King Lear, a man must endure his going hence even as his coming hither. The readiness is all. So I sit here in full readiness for what is arising, for what is declining. And what keeps me going is my vertical line that takes me to what I can rely on to help me get through it and to the wellsprings of creativity in me that help me make something of it that is really useful and growthful. Longing for growth is the equivalent of longing for all four of these to be operable. And I feel perfectly at home in each of my four directions. Sometimes all four happen at once. And sometimes it's mostly east or mostly west. Your horizontal lines. But your vertical lines apply at all times. So you can draw this at home or sometime soon. And you want to list in your west quadrant what's ending your right quadrant, what's starting? What's my, what are my resources spiritually? <clears throat> and what are my creative options? <clears throat> it's a really good practice. And you can think of the whole thing as this is what your psyche looks like when your 
orientation is toward growth, evolution. So you have the rising sun, uh, setting sun, and full sun. And then you have your north star that's, that's always reliably in the same place and shows you on the compass where you are. Questions about these? <clears throat> you can come up with your phones after and take pictures of any of these sheets, by the way, if you want. But you have your handout. You can draw this very easily. So these are your picture windows, large windows, so you can see the whole thing. But often, there are clouds in the way. There may be clouds for your North Star. I don't know what to rely on. There may be clouds before you can see your creativity. Just going to have to let them disperse on their own. Sometimes we get confused. We think we're looking east, but we're actually looking west. We think we hear reveille, but it's actually taps. So... Part of this is uh, kind of an awareness. Of all the practices I've ever found, it's the unconditional yes to the givens of life that most stabilizes me. Reminds me of the statement of St. Paul about Christ. In him, there was only yes. So could I ask, in me, could there be only yes? It would be a radical loyalty to reality. As opposed to a loyalty to my own illusions or wishes. So the longing to grow is the same as the longing to be present in your own life as one who not only allows himself or herself to see what's happening and what the resources are, both within us and above us, and to put them to use. Question? Yeah. An observation, it's also a rule of improv is always say yes and never no. So just interesting. Good. Yes, same idea. It's yes, now what? Other questions? Yeah. I I appreciate this analogy because uh, it seems whenever I've grown in my life, it's because I've said yes to an opportunity. And doors have opened, uh, and I just felt a maturation of my spirit. My question is, uh, I can't say yes to everything. So don't, I I mean, I'm I'm limited. uh, Even though my spirit is to want to to give and to serve. But 
I need to say no sometimes. Oh, yeah, I mean, you mean say no to overdoing it. Yeah. Well, there you're saying yes to take care of your own boundaries. So the healthy yes is I say yes to honoring my boundaries and yes to being of service. I wouldn't be able to be of service if I hadn't protected my boundaries. It's hard to say yes uh, to letting go if you associate the letting go with the loss of something you valued. Mm. And you felt that that what you valued had been intimately involved with your spiritual evolution. Mm. I hate to be sort of the pessimist here, but that's the one that really, you know, stood out for me. I agree. So that's where it would be a yes to the grief and the unanswerable questions. Yeah, sometimes it's not just, oh yeah, they're leaving home to go to college and now I'll have the empty nest. That just feels normal. But other losses are, you know, loss of maybe somebody who is very meaningful to you. And that's going to be very difficult to welcome in. So we would see it as a practice that makes us turn even more to our North Star and even more to our inner resources. Inner resources are here in the South. And resource beyond ego is up here, North Star. Yeah, resource beyond ego. So that's where you're going to go to the grief part, the letting go. You're not going to welcome as you would when you're on the east side. And you're right, it might be horribly wrenching. But that sometimes is the way it goes. Other questions about this? Uh, right here. Actually, it's more of a general question about the five longings altogether. Yeah. As I understand from your writing, one of the givens of life is that things change. So do the longings change as we move through life or is the, does the importance of various longings against the others change or is the issue in how we meet the longings? I do address that um, in the book. I think I use the example of the young woman who has the longing for freedom While she's in college, that looks like a lot of experimentation with relationship and sex. But if she then 
enters a relationship and either has or adopts a child, her new version of the same longing for freedom is not about having as many relationships and sex as possible. Her new way of showing the longing is how do I both act in the motherly way and still have a life of my own? So the longing remains the same, but the way we will operate within it is continually changing in accord with the particular phase of life that we're in. Make sense to everybody? Glad you brought that up. Other questions or ideas about this? All right, so I want to mention one final thing. Uh, where do we leave off with the reading? I mean the... Uh, Okay, so do you have a copy of the book? So if you have a copy of the book, if you go to page 161. Uh, You have one? Who has one? Raise your hand. Okay, do you want to read to us on page 161, Beverly, and just read the first paragraph and then give it to the next person with a book? Who has a book besides Beverly on this side? So you over here and then way in the back. The quotation? Yeah, here's, I'll read the quotation and then you start. It's a beautiful quotation from St. Teresa of Avila a Spanish mystic. Lord, consider that we do not know ourselves, that we know not what we want, that we go infinitely far astray from that which we most deeply long for. She noticed that. But there's one last thing about longings, about you're not really knowing the longing until later in life. So 161. Our longings show us what it means to be fully human, yet we sometimes don't even know what our longings are until they are fulfilled. From then on, we can never mistake them, these longings unnoticed until met. Here is a story that serves as an analogy to this touching fact about us. The person with the microphone, maybe you could be ready to give it to the next one with a book. Okay. You visit your cousin on this vast sheep ranch in Scotland. While you're there, one of his border collies gives gives birth to a healthy litter. When it comes time to return home, your cousin gives you a wonderful gift, one of the pups. You name him Shepherd and are very happy to have him. You bring your puppy to your apartment in Manhattan. You certainly love him. You put him on a scientifically sound diet. You bring him to an accomplished veteran for regular checkups. 
You hire an experienced dog walker for him while you're at work. You yourself walk with him in Central Park every weekend. Shepard has all a new all a New York dog could ever want. But there's something inside him that remains unsatisfied. There's a sheep-shaped hole in Shepard. How ironic his name. He can be happy, but he could never be content, nor can he guess why. Uh, right here, right, uh, right over here. This man right here. A couple years later, you go back to your cousin's ranch, bringing Shepard with you. The minute those four paws hit the ground, Shepard picks up the scent he was born to know. He sees his brothers and sisters herding the sheep and rushing and rushes without hesitation to join them. He feels true excitement for the first time in his life. Now at last, he knows what was missing all this time. He has found what he was born to be. He is doing what he was given a lifetime to do. He knows the meaning of his name, and he will never want to go back to his old life, so luxurious, so ultimately empty. Okay, way in the back. And then across to the other side. Unlike Shepherd, we have not just one, but at least five holes in us. Love-shaped, meaning-shaped, freedom-shaped, happiness-shaped, and growth-shaped. For each of these, we have a profound longing, whether or not we can always call it by name. We were born to be something uniquely individual, uniquely human, all spelled out by our five longings. We will always feel something is missing if we have not yet found its fulfillment or if we have swerved away from it once found. We feel our best when we find the lifestyle, relationship, and career that accommodates all five of our basic longings, at least in a good enough way. Raise your hand if you have a book. Okay. For little Shepherd, it was easy to find perfect fulfillment. He has only to stay in Scotland, and he will find fulfillment for a lifetime. We humans, on the other hand, can only feel our fulfillment for a moment here or there, hit or miss, not always here, not always there, anywhere but nowhere, too. We feel a longing for many years. We find fulfillment for an hour. Then the hole reopens, and we feel even more of a tug at our hearts. To say yes to that unsatisfying but unbending truth of impermanence, Buddha's first truth, a lifelong undertaking, is our most enchanting psychological challenge and our most liberating spiritual practice. In our yes to that challenge is a narrow but well-lighted path to the inner shrine of our true self, our enlightened nature. There all our longings abide, fulfilled as the quiet qualities of our wholeness, We find the path into it in Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know. We hear it again from the Gnostic teacher, Elogenes. I found a science stillness within me, and in it 
was the grace whereby I knew myself as I am. From the Nag Hammadi Library. This stillness is a royal road to trust, the link between holding our longings as longings for more and feeling them within us as the riches of enough. Okay, thank you. And I end with this beautiful statement of Virginia Woolf by Virginia Woolf. Month by month, things are losing their hardness. Even my body now lets the light through. <laughs> so um, that concludes our day. And I'd like to say thank you to everyone for being here and sharing. And um, I hope all your longings are fulfilled. (laughs) Oh, one last thing. I'll be back here in January to talk on the topic of trust. So check your catalog. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.